I think that we often, I think this has been a miscalculation actually from the environmental movement initially, where there was a lot of talk about sacrifice and what we need to give up. And I don't think that's untrue. I think there are things that we need to give up, but I, I'm one of those people that got a pandemic puppy. Okay. And I want to say that I did give up a lot when I got my puppy and I gained a lot. And I think that that's the piece that's missing. And so it's like, what if, what if less doing less is not actually a sacrifice? What if it actually gives us more? You know, one of the things, for example, that we've been told would really help the climate is actually working a four-day work week. That also connects to worker well-being and having time to care for your family. And that means you spend less money on caring for your family. And so there's all sorts of like proliferating effects that can happen from doing less. It's just not how our culture typically thinks about progress. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. Earlier this year, podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, and I produced Work Shouldn't Suck's Ethical Reopening Summit. The event took place online Tuesday, April 27th, and featured eight sessions, 25 amazing speakers, and covered a whole host of topics related to the ethical reopening of workplaces amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We raced to produce the summit from start to finish in just three weeks as we felt the urgency and stress mounting as workplaces were in the midst of reopening decisions. Several months on, we still feel the content is as necessary as ever, so we decided to release each of the sessions in podcast form. In each of the eight sessions, you'll hear the conversations just as the summit attendees did. As a reminder, in late April 2021, COVID vaccine distribution was just gaining speed, and we had yet to begin hearing about the Delta variant. From that vantage point in time, it very much looked like by fall 2021, things might be settling back into somewhat of a quote-unquote normal routine. As I record this preamble in fall 2021, that's not the case. We're now talking about breakthrough infections, booster shots, schools reopening and closing again, hospital ICUs are packed in states across the U.S., and still how to safely gather indoors as temperatures again begin to drop with the change in seasons. In this session, Intentionality and Environmental Impacts, the panel discusses how we can approach reopening in intentional ways that center our impact on planet and people. Panelists include Krista Bradley, Alexis Fraz, and Vijay Matthew, with this discussion moderated by the amazing Aaron Woods. So, over to you, Aaron. I'm going to kick us off. My name is Erin Woods, and I am Kate. Thanks, Kate. See, I've got the I've got some supporters in the crowd. I love it. <laughs> I am, for a matter of visual description, a, a white woman with sort of dark blonde hair. I'm wearing a pink blouse, and I'm in front of some mixed media art in my background. And I will ask the um, I'll ask the speakers the, when they introduce themselves to introduce themselves that way as well. But I'm calling in from my office in my home in Banff, Alberta, which is in Treaty 7 territory, the traditional home of the Stony Nakoda, Sutina, Blackfoot, and Métis Region 3 peoples who have historically and continue to call this place home. And Banff is, and has always been, a a place for migrants and immigrants. And so there are many of us who are uh, very fortunate to live here. And I think as as we talk about intentionality in the environment, it's great just to remember that what we're talking about is place. 
we're talking about where we are. And so, and Diane Ragsdale from the Netherlands even. So it would be great as we do this and people already are just to put in the chat where you're calling from, just so that we get a sense of where, where our community is joining us from. And I will hand it over to Krista maybe to introduce yourself and then we'll just do brief, brief introductions around and then we'll dive into the meat of the matter. Sounds great. Hi, everybody. I'm Krista Bradley. I'm Director of Programs and Resources at the Association of Performing Arts Professionals. I'm calling you from my home in Silver Spring, Maryland, outside of D.C., and it's the uh, traditional lands of the Piscataway and the Pamunkey peoples. I am, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm a Black woman with a dark purple shirt on and a gray sweater, bright blue headband, blue glasses, sitting in front of my Peloton and a window with lots of plants. It's good to be with you. Alexis? Sure, I am Alexis Graz. I am calling in from unceded Ohlone territory in Oakland, California. I'm a light-skinned woman with short bleach blonde hair. It's kind of a mohawk and I'm wearing a black sweater and sitting in front of a couple of posters by Shepherd Ferry. And I work at the at Helicon Collaborative, which is an organization that kind of focuses on the intersection of culture and the environment. We do a lot of things in that space, which I will talk about later. Vijay. Hi, everyone. My name is Vijay Matthew, and my pronouns are he, him. A visual description of myself is I have brown skin, short black hair, and a little gray stubble. <laughs> um, wearing a black short sleeve shirt with a collar and my background is a white wall and I'm calling from the Boston metro area which is the land of the Massachusetts and Pawtucket people and I'm the co-founder of HowlRound Theatre Commons which is based at Emerson College in Boston and it's a media publisher of essays and live streams that are produced by and for the uh, professional performing arts community. And I'm imagining that most of this, my hope is that most of this will really be more of just a conversation, a dialogue, because Vijay and Krista and Alexis all know each other. Certainly in the chat, feel free to any comments. And then there is also a Q&A, as you can see, there's a Q&A tab. So we will do a Q&A section at the end. So as questions come up, if you would plop them in there, that would be great. I'll try to keep an eye on those. But I would love to, by way of introductions, have each of the panelists talk about you know, who they are, their work, where their work and this idea of intentionality in the environment, where that starts to intersect. So just sort of a, you know, workplace overview, as well as maybe a couple little tidbits about you that aren't reflected in your job description, in your title, a little something that we might want to know about you. And I'd love to see that in the chat from um, individuals as well. Where do you work? Or if you're comfortable, what organization do you work for? And some other little nuggets about, you know, do you love French fries or um, you double joint or, or whatever that might be. So, so maybe Alexis, will you kick us off with just a little bit more about Helicon and your work and a couple tidbits about you that we might not know? Sure. Okay. So I'll start with the tidbits so I don't forget them. I, I probably would. Let's see. I, I have a garden that I'm pretty obsessed with and I have learned a little bit of permaculture. So I try to apply that as best I can. I am a rock climber and I um, am learning how to build things. And I built a shed in my backyard, which I'm very proud of. 
But as far as Helicon, so we, a few, maybe five or six years ago, we started really venturing into the environmental space and climate change. We came out of the arts. And so really the work that we do is at the intersection of culture and the environment. And that means that we really think of of the environmental issues that we face, including climate change, as cultural issues, not primarily technological or scientific issues. And that is a growing kind of perspective, I think, in the environmental sector broadly, that, you know, we we actually know many of the technical things we need to do, but how to change human behavior, how to move in a completely new way as a society is more of a social issue than and a cultural issue than, than a technical one. Granted, science is, plays a big part in it. I'm not denigrating that. And so the other piece of it, you know, is that because we came out of the cultural sector, we're really interested in the role that culture and artists creative practices can play in helping to make that transition to, you know, we, we talk about a just transition. That's the language that we we like because we've always had equity as a focus of our work. And really that means that, you know, whatever we do, the solutions protect and prioritize the people who are most impacted and, you know, focuses on making a better world for everybody. So I guess I'll stop there for now. Thank you. Hey, Jay, do you want to jump in on that to talk about your work and where intentionality in the environment and your work intersect and some tidbits? All right. Okay. So tidbits, let's see. I'm a parent to a 12-year-old. I'm addicted to spicy food and must have it every day. And I'm almost completely free of all social media platforms, liberated. So, okay. And then intersection with the, the work so Howram Theater Commons, its editorial agenda is to amplify progressive ideas and conversation and perspectives from performing artists themselves who are producing the essays and live streams. And, and unfortunately still, the climate emergency is actually a progressive and disruptive topic. And we have been um, publishing for several years incredible essays written by artists from around the world about their work at that intersection of performing arts and climate change, both about actual um, pieces that address that, as well as production methods and different systems of how the work comes into being that is aligned with different paradigms. And yeah, so I'm coming in at, at it from, from that perspective. And similar to what Alexis said, really seeing it as a, a cultural issue and and it's a culture that created the crisis and it's culture that will get us, that will mitigate or transition us into a different form. Yeah. So and I'll just throw a link in there to our tag on climate change where, where you'll find essays and videos about that artists have made themselves. Thank you. And Krista, of course, the work that you do and climate change, that there's sort of, you know, emissions in any way, they can't, can't be separated. And so certainly you've been thinking about this a lot. So I'd love to hear about sort of the work that you're doing and where that intentionality in the environment intersects and some, some juicy tidbits about you. Also. I don't know, juicy tidbits. I have become a plant mom during this COVID time and I started with one plant and now I have 15. So I'm really enjoying that. I love to cook and I have been a choral ensemble singer for probably 25, 30 years. So that is my thing, um, making music with people that you can't create on your own. So how am I connected to this work? I, you know, APAP is the service organization for the presenting 
touring and booking industry in the performing arts. And by that, I mean, we support the people, the artists, the agents and managers, and the venues that provide the infrastructure for artists to connect with communities around the country and around the globe. And by nature of the work of the touring, the live performing arts touring industry, we we spend most of our time moving people and our work and our arts across boundaries, across, you know, states, across oceans, um, across continents. And that in its nature is all about connecting artists with audiences. But but the way that we do it right now is fairly extractive. The model has that we've built our work on means that that artists have to tour enormously <laughs> to make a living and venues have to position themselves as interesting spaces where only certain artists go to. So there's there's lack of an incentive to sometimes be as thinking in partnership in ways that you can connect with other like-minded colleagues to bring artists to your communities and to do it in a way that's, you know, long-term and not for one night. The other piece of what APAP does is we're the one of the largest conveners of the performing arts industry every year. We have our APAP conference in New York, typically. It usually attracts three to 4,000 people coming into the city. And it's, you know, and it's, a, it's an important piece in the industry and in terms of gathering the field. However, it's also gathering a lot of people, making people travel a great deal to come to one place. And it, it puts out a lot of waste. <laughs> so, so, you know, both as, you know, as a service organization trying to be a couple of steps ahead of the field and provide information, resources, support on how to do our work better, how to be sustainable as a field and how to be just and equitable and accessible. The whole idea of, of being, you know, are interested in, in, in environmentally sound practices is really critical. And and how do we think about our work differently that now that we've had you know 13 months to have to reimagine how we how we work. So I'll stop there. And I, I think all of you touched on this idea that a lot of what we're talking about is how do we stay connected with our communities? How do we share whether it's art or a lot of the people in the, you know, and joining us maybe from arts organizations or maybe nonprofits more generally, but often those organizations, their fundamental reason for being is connecting with community and connecting now in different, maybe more creative ways. So I'd love to just have maybe an informal chat, Vijay, Alexis, and Krista, just about that, about what are we learning about connecting with community now that the old ways for 13 months we couldn't do, and we're coming to a real understanding of how how damaging those, those ways might be. So unmute yourselves, discuss. Well, I mean, I can I can jump in just to kick it off. I, you know, I think that to sort of some of the things Krista was mentioning, many of us have discovered not that they're, I don't want to minimize the real pain and suffering that's happened with COVID and, and the things that have been really difficult. I think that there have been things that we've discovered that are really valuable about not traveling as much, having more time with our families getting into plants and gardening, you know, connecting to our bodies in different ways, you know, and I think also recognizing what really matters that and the, and how we're connected to our communities, that if our community is not well, we're not well. And I think that the arts, especially, but so many businesses are like this, 
have become very disembodied, actually, that there's this idea that it's, it's very mental, it's very global. And I think the pandemic sort of forced us to be more local. And my hope would be that we sort of, I think we will be forced to be more local in the future, whether we like it or not. But I think that there's also great potential to see that as an opportunity and something really beautiful, especially because we have these platforms where we can actually connect more broadly, but then really go deep in our local place. So, yeah. Your thoughts about the <clears throat> that sort of the global and local, because I know a lot of the work that you're doing is really about this sort of streaming, you know, how do, how do we connect virtually? Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think... The, so the pandemic, in a sense, created an uh, uncontrolled collapse of a lot of our arts field, especially the touring and international presenting parts of it. And it was, you know, a cold turkey kind of quitting of the major tool we use for international touring and presenting, which is air travel, fast travel, which there is no, there's no quote unquote green alternative to the industry itself has said that they can't develop carbon-free emit technology in, t- in any kind of timeline that's, that's going to avert total catastrophe. So, I mean, there's that, that one thing. And so hopefully there's going to you know, go from uncontrolled collapse to now continuing a controlled collapse and putting creative limitations, like, for example, an organization stepping out very diff- in a very difficult way to say, we're not going to travel anymore using airplanes. And using that as a creative um, prompt to really rethink basically everything about their purpose, who are they serving. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is like during this pandemic, I speaking from the perspective of HowlRound and publishing and performing arts, artists wanting to connect and um, share ideas with each other, this has been an incredible moment for artists from the global south and global north to be in the same virtual space together like never before. And, and there's, so there's been some really incredible just, ex, just this kind of cultural mobility that happens in this virtual space that had never happened before, as well as breaking down of the ongoing decades-long silos of the deaf performing arts community, deaf theater makers, with the hearing community. It's still very, very, like what we heard in the first session, very siloed communities. And again, this virtual platform, platforms being able to break that down. And so those are very promising little beginnings of new new paths and creative ways that we can rethink what we're doing. Yeah, building on on both the Jay and Alexis's points, you know, we've we've seen presenting organizations connect to audiences that they didn't know that they had <laughs> and to have reach a much more browner audience than they than they thought they had because there there's you know less of a barrier and it's also been inspirational for artists to create work to reach a specific audience that may look like them in a different way without an intermediary which I think has been really interesting and and bodes well for how we will be connecting directly with our audiences as artists. I think that's that's been a really great innovation. I think that artists, we've heard at least, that they 
they think that they can have a better balance in terms of uh, making a living, <laughs> that they don't have to travel so much and they can spend more time with their family and they can find new ways to connect with each other and and make work in a virtual kind of way. And that's super exciting. I think, you know, for, for people that work in the performing arts as administrators, it is not necessarily very people-friendly. We seem to prize, you know, long hours, extreme work, being in the theater for like, you know, 18, 20 hours, not taking time off, et cetera. And so for workers in this industry, I think we've all kind of realized that that's not only unsustainable, but it's not something that we really want to do again. So how do we reimagine and advocate for a different way of working for us, working in the cultural sector, maybe not making work, but certainly supporting the work that does get made and recalibrate what we think is a, is a just way to work for us in the arts and cultural sector, which, you know, I think is long overdue. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to your point, Vijay, about accessibility and, and, equity, you know, we we at APAP discovered that even with the conference, you know, that our conference is an expensive conference. People cannot access it to the extent that they would like to. And yet we attracted so many more people on the SNAP swap cards platform this year that would never have been able to come. And in fact, the leaders of organizations who are usually the ones that come to our conference invited and were able to to give all of their staff access to thinkers and doers and you know mavericks that were talking about innovation which was amazing so we in our practice realized that you know we can be much more accessible and inclusive and equitable and should be by pursuing a more hybrid model so those are some things that I'm I'm seeing mm-hmm. Can I just jump in with one thing to build on that, which is, mm-hmm. I think that we often, when, and I think this has been a miscalculation actually from the environmental movement initially, where there was a lot of talk about sacrifice and mm-hmm. what we need to give up. And I don't think that's untrue. I think there are things that we need to give up, but I, I'm one of those people that got a pandemic puppy. Okay. And I want to say that I, I did give up a lot when I got my puppy and I gained a lot. And I think that that's the piece that's mis- missing. And, you know, so it's like, what if what if less doing less is not actually a sacrifice? What if it actually gives us more, more time? What if, you know, one of the things, for example, that we've been told would really help the climate is actually working a four-day work week. Yeah. That also connects to, you know, worker well-being and having time to care for your family. And that means you spend less money on caring for your family. And so there's all sorts of like, proliferating effects that can happen from doing less. It's just not how our culture typically thinks about progress. Exactly. Good point. I want to add to the, you know, the, the, the workplace and work organization and how that's structured, how, and how that's related to actually climate crisis, where, you know, the, the idea of extraction or costs or hidden costs or the cost of doing business that we kind of put aside and we just let them happen, that's related to the workplace and that, you know, in there in organizations that have less of a hierarchy in terms of a rentier class of people, people on top who 
no matter what they're doing, no matter what value they're creating for the organization, are always somehow extracting more wealth, more resources, more longevity, more opportunities, more resources than people lower in the hierarchy who may, for example, be artists who are freelance contractor, paid very little, who are, who are struggling to just make basic ends meet, basic needs met. And, and so that, that mindset that there can actually be, and that we all collectively kind of accept this as a norm or it's normal that there is a rentier class in our nonprofit or arts organizations, that's the same mindset that is also capable of allowing a climate emergency to run away out of our control, even to the point where it's truly on the table whether or not we're going to survive as a species. Our, our complex civilization is going to actually be something we can keep on to. That's truly on the table. So there's that mind shift, that, that change of perspective and change of culture that has to also infiltrate, in, in talking just from the arts, like uh, nonprofit organizations, they truly need to look into maybe the worker cooperative model or some other kind of system that is not just based on cheap, free labor. Mm-hmm. And it would be great. I would love actually to have you all three maybe talk just a little bit more about that, that it's come up a bunch of times that this is really about a cultural shift. It's not a technological problem. It's not about it's not about the science. It's actually about who we are and how we want to be in the world. And that what we value and what we think about as sustainable, not only in terms of the environment, but in terms of our own lives and our own selves and our neighborhoods, all of those sort of cultural things, especially in response to some of the conversations I know that happened this morning about base camp and reverting to 1983. And so if there is this movement, there's a pull to 1983. And there's a pull towards this possible, these possible futures. I would just love your thoughts about how we might weight the scales <laughs> one way. And then also, well, since I've got the floor, if anybody's got questions, please do start to populate the, the Q&A section. And we will start to field questions from, from all of you as well. So thanks. The brilliant, the pull towards the future. But what have we seen that's worked? Maybe it's not a massive shift to the future. Maybe it's just small little changes that, as, as Alexis says, aren't necessarily sacrifices. They're just shifts. Well, I don't, yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the scale of change. I think that, I think the reality is we are in and entering more so a time of accelerating change. And I think that we just need to come to terms with that as a society really the question of whether we want to change or we don't want to change, it's just not an option. It's not our choice. We do get to choose how we want to meet that moment. And do we want to, and I think, you know, for our own survival, as Jay said, but also especially for justice, because there are people, I mean, this is, climate change has sort of been presented as as if it's this far away thing. And I think more and more of us are dealing with you know, we have flooding, we have fires where I am in California that are extreme impacts on our quality of life and our ability to work as if, I mean, that's not the primary concern that most of us have when those things are going on is whether or not we can work, but they do affect our ability to work and to 
participate in our in our industry, whatever that may be. But we know that those things are going to continue to accelerate at this point, regardless of what we do for a while. And it isn't to say that our actions don't matter. They actually do quite a lot. And so I think there's, you know, one of the things in our culture that it's sort of characteristic of a consumer culture is that we sort of, there's an immaturity and an innocence, right? I mean, this is being talked about a lot in the racial justice work that is also becoming to the fore in our in our culture, but it's like, you know, it there's no excuse for not knowing what we should know at this point. And so the question is really, how are we going to participate in that? And I think, you know, I remember actually this happened at, at Banff, Aaron, when we first met, there was a environmental guy. He, he worked in, it was, I was part of an environmental meeting. This was probably seven or eight years ago. I remember this guy who worked in the environmental sector and he was recounting this experience he had talking to one of his friends about what he did and thinking, yeah, I'm really, you know, we're really having this great dialogue about climate change. And after they finished the conversation, he said, well, you know, good luck with that. I really hope you make some progress on that, you know? And it's like, it was like his issue, his, you know, and, and I think that we need to recognize that the context for all of our issues, no matter what you care about, it's, it's the context in which we live. And, and I think that creates a lot of opportunity for empowerment actually around what we can do. You know, we are both potentially leaders of organizations or staff members. We are consumers, we are voters, we are role models for parents. So thinking much more broadly, not just about ourselves as consumers, but as, you know, citizens really, I mean, not, you know, using the negative connotations of that term, but like really participants in and responsible for the future of our society and our world. I'm really interested in the whole in leadership because it just keeps pop- popping up, you know, because this march that we're on is is inevitable, inevitable as notes, you know, and adaptation to to the climate emergency and to, you know, so a, a very different reality that's quickly approaching, I think is is going to be so critical. So how how are we leading from the middle? How are we leading cooperatively? You know, that the your Vijay, your the comment you made about different work structures and sort of, you know, flattened hierarchical work structures and thinking about cooperatives, I'm just wondering how those could play or that model could play a role in leading change and moving away from that kind of individual person that's whatever, trying to drive change. And change, I think, comes from more mass movements of of like-minded people who are making small or medium-sized calls for change or just coming up with different guidelines or ways to work that even in their own small sector or small organization. And Kate, I, I, I have worked for a number of small organizations, so I totally see and, and appreciate that, that challenge about trying to uh, maintain change. And I think uh, what's, what's helped me is being able to network and create a collaborative of people who are all working towards that as ways to, to learn from and to, you know, cheer on and, and continue to move things forward. Cause I do, I do believe in the power of that kind of collective movement and cohort groups making, making change. I just wanted to raise that up in terms of the whole leadership piece. No, I think that that's great. And Vijay, you also, though, you know, in addition to the sort of the individual, the smaller collective grassroots movements, you also have talked about radical operational changes. And so like, where do those play together, perhaps? There's something about how when we live in a, a specific system, whether it's our workplace 
or just in our greater economy and we've been called as consumers. These systems really impact the way that we relate to each other. And despite our own personal intentions or values, these systems seem to always trump the ideology and the values embedded in these systems always seem to trump our individual uh, will. And, and so if we're able to live and create new structures in our workplaces and in the world outside of our workplaces, it will bring out better things in us as people, I think. So that, that's an important aspect. And that's incredibly related to you know, the, the system, the capitalist consumer system, colonial system that has created climate, the climate crisis. So those are all very related. The other thing is that getting back to point I think Krista made about disruptions, also Alexis, these disruptions that are going to be ongoing, continued um, crises that are localized or global pandemic or whatever, that our impulse is to collaborate and to take care, to really start to do the work of caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, is incredibly important. And, and, you know, in the cultures and systems we inhabit, we'll bring that out in us so that we can do that better. And I think that's really where the arts, one, one way the arts can go is to really see how they can actually be a caring entity in their community, both local and, and virtual. And then practically what that means is like, you're not, for example, doing accessibility practices for your online events. That's a good and quick place to start. Yeah, I think that's a really, so many points are so important that you're making. And there's a a really great book that just came out recently called Less is More by this anthropologist called Jason Hickel. And one of the things that they've found and that he writes about in that book is that democratic governance is almost, is, is always associated with better care for people and the environment when any group, it's not just democratic political systems, which we don't actually have, and we know that, but when people are collectively able to make decisions together for the good of the whole, they make the right decision. And so I think that really speaks to the point about changing structures. And it seems like it's not necessarily related to the to Kate's question. There may be things that don't seem like they're, you know, you may not be able to afford putting solar panels on the roof of your building, but you can practice more democratic um, decision making, and many small organizations already do. And so I think that also, as you, you know, if you do look through and do an audit of your, you know, activities and look for ways that you can minimize your harm, also look for ways that you might be able to maximize your benefit in places where maybe you already are. Like, you know, many, many artists, I think it's, there are artists who fly all the time and go around the world and use a ton of carbon, but most artists that I know. In, in my local community live pretty modest lives. So to ask them to, you know, really cut back more is probably not the best bang for the buck in terms of what we're looking at here, which is not to say everybody should do their part and can, you know, whatever you can do, great. But, you know, if you already take the subway, if you already, you know, live in a in a house with multiple people, like, you're ahead of the game in a lot of ways. So I think that we also need to think about like really looking at the, the places where there's the most bang for the buck and both in, in both those senses in terms of reducing harm, but also, you know, human beings have this capacity to have an impact beyond our 
you know, species size. Like we, we have an impact on everything else. And so concepts, I mentioned permaculture in the beginning, a concept that permaculture is, is kind of maximize your impact actually, not minimize it, but do it in, in for good, not for evil and with intentionality. Mm-hmm. Maximize your impact. That's, you know, I guess it could be misconstrued, but, but I really, I get it in the context <laughs> that you're using. <laughs> do you have anything else along those lines, Krista, that you just, because I think there is a question in the Q&A about, about that, that actually might relate to this maximizing your impact idea is that in organizations, do we have some thoughts? Yes. On what we can do individually. How do we get more democratic decision-making, but in some of these big, you know, do we just try to blow it up? Do we make incremental change? Do we have time for incremental change? You know, what is a transformative process, a practical way to think about organizational shifts? If you maybe see some examples or have some ideas or some good case studies. Well, I think the, the quickest way for any shift to happen in the nonprofit arts is if funders actually make policies that actually mandate certain things. That's You literally can change the field overnight if that happens. That's the lever to pull. Agree more, Jay. I mean, that's kind of how our infrastructure is, is, is designed, right? You know, that people need incentives to change. And I don't think it's incremental, frankly. I'm tired of incremental change. I'm tired of incremental change around racial justice, gender justice, disability justice, trans justice. It's like, you know, we have all waited way too long. And now, you know, you just need to blow blow it up. And and the way to blow it up is to have the accomplices of, of our funding partners who say, you know, who are already doing major, taking major steps to, you know, take the corpus of their money and put it in a different place. And you see how that's shifting tons of ways that people are making decisions about who they're hiring or what they're, you know, what organizations are thriving or at least not failing because they've been under-resourced for so long and at least now are, are beginning to get some of their some just investment. So yeah, funders are really critical to this and 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 not incrementally. That's not how you make change. At least not right now, I don't think. And we don't have time. Um oh, I have so many mixed feelings about this. I agree. I think that funders have outsized influence and can can put pressure. And in fact, um many of you may know already of a group called Julie's Bicycle and the UK, and they have been very successful at encouraging and working with organizations in the UK to develop sustainability plans because they had to as a condition of funding from the Arts Council of England, which funds everybody, whereas our funding system doesn't really work quite as, and I I don't know enough about Canadian, I know there's some Canadians on the call, I don't know enough about the system there to know whether that would work, but I think that, you know, pressure can be put. I think one of the things that was really interesting to me about their work is that just developing the plan for sustainability, that was the requirement. You didn't have to deliver on it. You actually just had to develop the plan and submit it. And just doing that, people actually did start to do things, even though they didn't have to. And the well-being and sense of employee satisfaction in the organizations increased. And I don't know, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can interpret why. To me, I think there's something very kind of, there's something about being in integrity with the truth of what we know. You know, some scientists have talked about there being this kind of 
this way that we're all operating in a sense of denial. Those of us who believe in climate change are still operating in a sense of denial because we acknowledge it on the one hand and then we're, and then we say, well, yeah, but I mean, I do need to fly to that really important conference because I've been invited to do the keynote or whatever it is, my, you know, go visit my friend in Mexico or something like that. So, you know, we make those kinds of compromises all the time. And so it means that we don't take it as seriously as it actually is. And so I think there is something that feels really aligning and good on an inner level to be sort of operating with, you know, with the, in alignment with the reality that we know is true. One, one thing that I think would be a good partnership between organizations and funders is, is trying to solve this issue that Alexis, you bring up of like one's career advancement or progress in one's field is right now aligned with mobility and your ability to travel and ability to be in places, the ability to take airplanes. And if, and there is a way, I don't know what it is, but we would be in the correct structure or a structure that is less harmful if we can figure out how to decouple career advancement mm. um, from fast travel. That's really so insightful. I'd never even made those connections, but you're, you're absolutely right, right? And, and how is that equitable? first of all, and how, you know, and, and access to movement and career advancement, you know, is limited to the few that have the ability to do that. So thanks for raising that. That's, that's really, really insightful. Yeah. And what I, what's striking me too, that's come out of this conversation is, you know, a very, you know, the lever to pull the funder lever, like the big lever, but there are also these smaller cracks in systems that maybe we can start to think about, well, okay, maybe we could just change our hiring practices or we don't make people go to conferences as often. Or are there smaller little um, shifts institutionally while we're also keeping an eye on the big things? But that, mm-hmm. you know, just writing a sustainability plan actually leads to employee wellness is not a thing you would know, but it's the right thing to do. And so I think that that also comes back to doing the right thing often leads to more right things, which is, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, fluffy, but also really quite practical. Just so any other last questions in the group or thoughts about other practical approaches or maybe a few words of wisdom or resources that the panelists would like to leave? We've had a couple of URLs in the, um, the Less is More book mentioned already closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say, I think, I think I would, you know, this is a really good question. I didn't see it from more about the practical approach and do we shutter organizations? And as much as I do think some change can happen from above, it's both top down, but it's also bottom up. And I, I really think that we're seeing this with the racial justice work right now, where it's become unacceptable to have certain people on your board, to have you know, to say certain things. I mean, it's slower than any of us would like, but I do see this this tide turning. And so I also think that that artists, grassroots groups can put pressure on the above with sort of setting the setting the culture. So I think that's possible. But I also think that one really important thing, and um, I hate to leave on a down note, so someone else will have to fill in, is to plan for adaptation as well. Because just like with COVID, with the wildfires, like there are going to be these things happening. And for small groups and small and artists, really understanding what the what the issues are in your place and connecting with other people who can help to um, 
build resilience around those things. Thanks, Alexis. I don't know if a famous person said this, but I did hear that art is adaptation plus imagination. I wrote that down somewhere. So <laughs> I'm an interesting idea. But Vijay, Krista, last last thoughts? Yeah, just a, a quick little tiny project I've been working on that I'm very excited about. It's just, this is a basically a carbon emissions calculator for streaming media. And it's just, just launched it. And it's basically an awareness tool, awareness tool about the costs of our activity and then masquerading as math and science. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, and I was, and it's just a site that may be helpful. The intention there is for people in organizations who are thinking of tapering their, their travel, tapering their carbon emitting travel to use, use this kind of tool or some kind of tool to create a tapering budget of carbon emissions aside alongside their actual financial budgets. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Another, another lever for sure. Budgets. Definitely. And that, Krista, the last word. from our oh, I think the glass is always half full because we work in a field with a lot of creative people who are passionate about caring for one another and for this earth. So I, I have no doubt that there uh, will be change where it's needed. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm inspired by this conversation and my colleagues and, and, and really hope it's been uh, useful for everybody else. And, and I'm hoping that we can create more tools like the tool that Vijay is talking about, the tools and sort of structure of, that Julie's Bicycle created. You know, I think we need language. We need tools in our field to help build that awareness and to give us a, a steps for how we can make incremental and, and seismic change. So I'm, I'm hopeful that will happen. I look forward to partnering on ways to make that happen. Thank you all so much. Vijay, Krista, Alexis, thank you for joining me. Thank you for everyone else on the call, on the session. I am looking thank forward you, to you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm yeah, thanks, Aaron. Suck <laughs> and what they come up with next. This is going to be uh, this, you know, talk about a movement, talk about some commitments that, yeah, we Work shouldn't suck. It shouldn't be bad for the environment. It shouldn't be bad for its employees. So I think um, this kind of movement is, uh, we're part of it and it's exciting to be here. So thank you all. Thanks for joining us. Find more about the Ethical Reopening Summit, including speaker bios and session recaps at workshouldn'tsuck.co backslash ethical hyphen reopening hyphen summit hyphen 2021. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.